John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com. Promo code John Z. This is episode number 117 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I'm your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Later on in this podcast, you're going to hear something I guarantee you will not hear anywhere else, which hopefully will make you laugh and think in a very uh, unique way. So stay tuned for that. But first, a lot of news to get to, including the biggest development so far in the presidential campaign, maybe the most significant and probably probably the most significant decision that either candidate will make during the entire campaign. And that is that Joe Biden has chosen his vice presidential nominee, and it's pretty much as predicted. Kamala Harris, senator from California, right here in California, is Joe Biden's VP pick. We told you uh, many, many, many moons ago uh, that it would be a woman of color and that uh, Harris was one of two or three options and that she would be the favorite. She would be the safest pick. By the way, there's been some controversy over how to pronounce her first name. Tucker Carlson, uh, a clip of him on Fox News Channel last night went viral because he got very upset when a guest corrected him as to how to say uh, Kamala Harris's first name. I am famously horrendous at names, and I have been uh, referring to her as Kamala Harris because I have heard that as here in California, the way that the media pronounces it. So I, I, I am actually surprise someone who lives in the state where she's a senator that's now it's Kamala Harris but okay fine whatever it's Kamala Harris uh, so we'll go with Kamala Harris but Kamala Harris uh, is someone who obviously ran for president and it did not go well at all 
In fact, it went very, very poorly. Correct. Uh, much more poorly than anyone expected, because let's go back in time. And it is amazing. It is amazing how quickly things change in this bizarro world in which we now live. But if we go back over a year to uh, the very, very first debate, remember that? <laughs> Way before COVID, back when we were still in a semi-rational world, in the very first debate, uh, Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden and went after him in such a way that at the time it was perceived, oh, my gosh, Biden is mortally wounded. Here's the old guy. Uh, you know, here's the woman of color going after uh, Joe Biden on the issue of race and effectively maybe even calling him a racist for his past uh, uh, positions on busing back in the uh, dinosaur era. And uh, and and I'll never forget, and we're going to play it here in a second, this clip, which now in retrospect seems very comical. But she was interviewed, Harris was, right after that debate by Chris Matthews. Now, at the time, <laughs> this is not 10 years ago. This is a little over a year ago. At the time, Chris Matthews was a, a, a legend on CNBC, MSNBC then, uh, and, uh, you know, a liberal icon, uh, political commentator. And uh, here he, as he often did, completely jumps the gun by uh, extrapolating that Biden was toast because of Harris going after uh, him. And I think there was an implication that Harris was now the person to beat in the Democratic race for the uh, presidential nomination. And uh, why? Let's go into a time warp and listen to what that sounded like in the, after the uh, first Democratic debate. Is, is Biden finished after tonight? No, I don't think so. No, in your eyes. No, I don't think so. <laughs> now, good for her. And this is probably why she was able to be the VP pick. Uh, she says no. What I think she wanted to say was, what a ridiculous question, Chris. And, of course, since then, Chris Matthews has been canceled. Chris Matthews no longer is around. Joe Biden is not just uh, the nominee, but he's the favorite to be the president of the United States in, in, the, in the next uh, uh, after the next election by next January at the end of January when he would be inaugurated. And now Kamala Harris is his vice presidential nominee. So it's awfully strange how this has all turned out. And it's not just that moment, by the way, where Harris has said things that would be considered critical of Joe Biden. And if the media wanted to, they could create a very uncomfortable situation. For Harris and Biden. But of course, the media doesn't want to. The media is completely, the mainstream media is completely on their side. They're eff effectively the PR team for Biden and Harris. And as I predicted, I told you this as well. I told you that uh, someone, Harris would likely be the VP nominee. But regardless of which woman of color he chose, the media would have a collective orgasm over it. And they have while omitting many key elements of her biography, which, if she was not a Democrat and part of the favored team, would already be highlighted. Now, I always try to be exceedingly fair. And, you know, so I'm going to go through what I think are the good elements of the Harris pick, and then I'll get into this, the, the negatives that the media are basically ignoring at this point. I do think that she is a smart person. I also think that she is qualified to be a vice presidential nominee. Uh, she is well-spoken. At times, she can be a very good speaker. She's quick-witted. Uh, she's got a little bit of gumption. You know, she's got a backbone. She's got a little bit of balls, uh, which I like. I mean, I don't agree with uh, almost all of her politics, but at least there's something there. I think she will bring energy. 
to the Biden ticket. Now, whether there will be a political balance or not, eh, there'll probably be a little one. There almost always is just because people will be, you know, find something new and exciting. Uh, and there is the alleged historic, historic element of this because she's being referred to as an African-American and the first African-American female on a major ticket and all that. So there are positives that she brings. And this is clearly, from the Biden perspective, a very safe pick. I agree with those who say this is an indication that the Biden team is confident they're going to win. This is the pick you choose if you feel like, all right, well, you know, we've got the lead going in the fourth quarter. We're not going to be making any, uh, you know, dramatic changes. We're not going to do any gadget plays. We're going to keep the ball on the ground. We're going to try to run out the clock. Uh, we're going to throw a bone to our base, especially, uh, you know, those in the black community, uh, you know, who have obviously been the focus of a lot of attention because of all the civil unrest and the protests and the riots and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, all of that. So it, it checks all of the key boxes. And so, it's not a terrible pick. I mean, Biden had options that would have been worse. I think Susan Rice would have been worse from the Obama administration. Elizabeth Warren, who I never think I thought was even under any legitimate uh, consideration, would have been by far the worst. Correct. I mean, I mean, she would have brought absolutely nothing to the table at all except a negative uh, progressive baggage. Uh, and I don't know that anybody else was even in pretend world uh, considered. I still maintain that Val Demings, the African-American female uh, from Florida, who's a former police chief, who's a congresswoman, I thought she would have been the most interesting pick. And that's who I would have gone for if I, based upon what my current knowledge is, maybe there's something about her I don't know. Uh, but I found her to be impressive in the impeachment hearings, and I like her background. And uh, I thought she brought a lot more to the table, especially from a, simply a geography standpoint. I mean, she's from the most important state. I mean, Florida is it. I mean, if Biden wins Florida, it's over. That's it. It's over. Uh, and, you know, here she is, uh, you know, a congresswoman from Florida. That doesn't guarantee you're going to win Florida, but you're winning Florida. So I, the Demings idea was the most appealing to me. And as someone who has had always been planning before the madness that ensued five months ago because of the, the COVID was always planning to support Joe Biden and hoping to be able to support Joe Biden. A Biden Demings ticket to me would have made me much more comfortable than a, a Biden Harris. See, but the problem with the Harris situation is, and, and this might not have been as big an issue with Demings because she's not that well known and she, she's only a Congressman, not a Senator. So there may not have been as much of a presumption with the Demings as there is with a Harris that effectively, if Harris is elected vice president of the United States, he is going to be president in potentially very short order. And, and that is something that needs to be emphasized and understood. And, and it's, it's really upsetting me that my former friends in the professional Never Trump GOP category have been so embracing the Kamala Harris choice because they have no choice. Right? They, they have no option because they have to signal their virtue to their liberal fan base, their customers. This, this is what this is now. This is this is all grift. And and so, you know, their Twitter followers all expect them to to show love for Kamala Harris. And in doing so, while they in the short run ingratiate themselves with their liberal audience and their liberal media masters, 
the reality is they are setting America up for Kamala Harris presidency. That is going to happen almost assuredly if she is the VP and Biden, uh, obviously Biden wins. She's elected vice president. There is no way in hell Joe Biden is going to be president eight years from now. It's not going to happen. There is whether, you know, if he if he loses, if uh, he decides not to run for reelection, if he dies in office. I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios. It would be almost impossible to comprehend that Joe Biden is still president. Now, granted, a lot of strange things happen in this day and age, but I would take a I would easily take that bet that Joe Biden is not going to be president eight years from now. It's not going to happen. So if you just use basic logic, if Biden beats Trump, as is currently expected and I expect to happen, and Harris is the VP, she becomes a heavy favorite to be the Democratic nominee in 2024. And that's assuming Biden gets through his first term. And a lot of people don't think that's going to happen. I I personally do think it's going to happen. But uh, the most likely scenario is Biden decides not to run for re-election in 2024, and that means that Harris is the nominee. The, the, you, the, I mean, barring some sort of catastrophic uh, development, Harris will be the Democratic presidential nominee, and she will effectively be running as an incumbent. And she's either going to be running against Donald Trump, who won't go away after having lost in 2020, or somebody else who gets through an incredibly bruising Republican primary. There's no way to do that because you either have to embrace Trump or you have to reject Trump, and that's a choice that's going to doom you either way as a Republican. You either reject reject him or you embrace him. There's no way to thread that needle. So what I'm telling you is there's no way a, a Republican, uh, you know, under any remotely normal circumstances— is going to be able to beat Kamala Harris in 2024 if she's the vice president. So what effectively has just happened is that now we're voting not just who the 2020 president's going to be, you know, 2021 when they get inaugurated. We're not voting just for 2021. For the first time maybe ever, certainly in modern times, we're voting for the next two presidents. And, and maybe you could argue even beyond that. So So that needs to be understood. And Kamala Harris, while she's not Elizabeth Warren, brings a lot of very dangerous baggage to this scenario and scares the living daylights out of me in the long term here, which is a large part of why I still can't support Biden. Now, this is ironic because way, way, way back, back before the world changed, I even suggested that Biden might be able to save his nomination by teaming up with Harris, because I thought that if he did that, he said, "Okay, Harris, you're going to be my VP. That would clinch him the nomination. And at that time, I still thought, you know what? All right. uh, We got to get rid of Trump. Trump's a cancer. And uh, and and anything that does that is is a positive development, even if it's not perfect. And Biden's the, the lesser of all the evils. And he just got to get Biden to win. Well, a lot has changed since then. First of all, I think Biden's mental capabilities are far more in question now than they were then. Uh, But obviously, the major thing is that the world has totally changed because of COVID. And the stakes, I think, are far higher than they even were. And Biden's base has proven themselves to be batshit fucking crazy. I mean, just batshit fucking crazy. 
I mean, I, I mean, I hate Donald Trump as much as I ever have. But uh, Donald Trump has never tried to take away my freedoms. Donald Trump has never done anything that I considered was a danger to my children's future. Uh, but Democrats and liberals here in California and around the and around the country have done that almost every single day for five months and taken glee in it. So those are the people to whom Joe Biden is now beholden. And when I got to vote for I'm being asked to vote for not just the Biden presidency, which I still think is probably the lesser of the two evils. But now I'm being forced to vote for Kamala Harris to be president, maybe for the extension of 12 years from now. I mean, heck, I mean, there's scenarios where that that would easily be done, where she's still president 12 years from now, depending on how this whole thing goes down. So uh, I mean, that 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 is very bothersome to me. (laughs) And it is embarrassing that so-called, you know, never Trump Republicans are signing off on this enthusiastically because there are big problems with her. She is very, very liberal. Now, it is astonishing to me that Chris Wallace on Fox News Channel, of all places today, actually criticized Trump and Republicans for claiming that she is super far left, that she's not really that far left. Uh, I get that she was attorney general here in in California and that, you know, she was tough on crime to whatever extent uh, that's real and whatever extent that I I guess being tough on crime now is is somehow makes you not a super liberal. I mean, is is that where we are now, where that if you believe criminals should go to jail, people that if you that that somehow it means you're not progressive, that you're not liberal. Wow. That's an that's an amazing indication right off the bat. But let's just go through a few things here. Now, um, the, the first thing is that this is a woman who publicly came out in favor of slave reparations, slave reparations, reparations for slavery under what she described as mental health ramifications. In other words, black people in this country should be paid because of the mental health problems that have ensued in the many generations since there was slavery in this country. What? You cannot be serious. Uh, uh, but th- that's what she said. That's what she believes. And when you say that publicly, uh, now maybe she did it as a political gambit and it didn't work, but she said it. And when you say that, I'm sorry, you, that, that means if that's not liberal, I don't know what the hell is. I mean, it doesn't get any more liberal than that. You want to pay people for the color of their skin for something that they never experienced. I mean, it really does not get any more progressive than that. It's just flat out ridiculous. So that's a big one for me. I can't get beyond that. I mean, that is that is as bad as it gets when you're in favor of slavery reparations. She also completely got duped by and slobbered all over. Jesse Smollett, after his fake hate crime, where he claimed to be beaten up by uh, Trump fans in Chicago in the middle of a freezing cold night on his way to get Subway. Correct. Uh, I mean, that to me either indicates, one, she's dumb, not as smart as I thought she was, if she was really duped, or more likely she wanted to be duped, that she saw the, the, the opportunity to signal her virtue 
to this is again remember this is the very beginning of the presidential campaign and so she's embracing a black gay man who is liberal and who was supposedly attacked by trump fans and she bought in totally and she was wrong and she didn't just say i support him she slobbered all over him as a human being and she was wrong she was completely wrong so how in the world when you're that wrong on Jesse Smollett and you're in favor of slavery reparations, I'm sorry. Yes, Chris Wallace, you're super liberal. By the way, I already referenced this earlier as far as things that could be very uncomfortable for the Harris-Biden team or the Biden-Harris team if the media wanted it to be. Harris didn't just support Jesse Smollett. Harris said that she, quote unquote, believed the accusers of Joe Biden. Correct. The, the accusers of Joe Biden, and which I think she was wrong about, by the way. But so she believes that her running mate, the, the next president of the United States, if she has her way, is a sexual abuser? Or is she somehow being able to get it both ways, which I guess is what's going to happen, because that's now the world we live in, where she, you're allowed to have it both ways. I believe the women <laughs> accusing my my running mate of being a sexual abuser, but... I don't believe that my running mate is actually a sexual abuser. <laughs> you cannot be serious. That's where we are now. That's where we are. Similarly, it, how amazing is it that Biden can get away and the Democrats can get away with just blanket for month, for several months now, at least a couple of months, making it very clear that the only people who are going to be seriously considered for the VP slot are, quote-unquote, women of color, right? That was made very clear. Uh, Amy Klobuchar dropped out of the race because she's a woman, so she qualified halfway. She has a vagina, uh, but she doesn't have enough color. Her skin is too white, and she's from Minnesota, so therefore she's not qualified. So so for, for months now, it has been obvious, in fact demanded by the left, that Biden pick a woman of color. Okay, fine. But if you do that, how do you not get the other side of that sword? The other side of that sword is you just pick someone based on their race and their gender. That's affirmative action. And if you're blatantly making this pick as an affirmative action pick, doesn't that, and first of all, isn't that inherently racist and sexist? And second of all, doesn't that inherently diminish the nature of the pick because you're acknowledging that you didn't pick them based on the content of their character or their qualifications or anything else. You picked them because they were a woman of color, right? I mean, isn't that right? Correct. Uh, I mean, yet, yet somehow nowhere you know, on CNN and MSNBC and the other mainstream outlets that I was flip, flipping through during the orgasmic media coverage of Harris's selection, nobody even raises this issue. So, so Democrats get to have it both ways here. They get to get all the benefits of, hey, we're, we're, we're going to have a black female or a woman of color, and uh, you know this is going to be awesome. It's going to be historic. But they don't get the downside of reducing the most important decision Biden will make during the entire campaign to one that is purely affirmative action. And that's astonishing. And as far as this issue of woman of color, this really irritates me. I don't know. I, I just have this compulsion. It's, it's not been helpful in my life at all, but I, I, I cannot stand it. 
when uh, there's something so obvious, the elephant standing in the corner of the room, that no one has the balls to actually say and where we have to play pretend. I, I, I just cannot do it. I cannot do it. I, I, can, I can try for a few minutes, and, and invariably uh, it doesn't work. In fact, uh, when the Harris pick was made, I, I told a very, very prominent friend of mine, you know, I, I'm going to really try hard, really try hard to not mention that, by the way, uh, Kamala Harris is not an African-American. And uh, they laughed and they said, well, you know, that's probably a pretty good idea. Well, as it turned out, I I couldn't do it. (laughs) I got asked to do a a TV interview uh, on the Blaze TV network, Glenn Beck's outlet, and I I just exploded because I had watched uh, CNN praise this uh, African-American historical pick for two hours, and I just couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) I just couldn't take it anymore because the reality is, by any rational definition, Kamala Harris is not an African-American. Oh, look at my African-American over here. Uh, the, the reality is, now, I don't care. I honestly do not care. I, I find her background very interesting, and I find her background actually to be mostly a positive. But it's not an African-American background. Her mom is from India. Her dad is from Jamaica. So from a purely racial perspective, now there are all the people who say, well, where did Jamaicans come from? Didn't they come from Africa? Well, wait, okay. Theoretically, we all came from Africa. I mean, by that definition, we are all African-Americans. Everyone that's American is an African-American because that's apparently where humanity began. So we're all uh, African-Americans in some semblance. But by the way, you know, there's there's two different, at least two different definitions of African-American. There's the purely genetic evolutionary definition, which I don't think she fits. And then there's the cultural definition. Was her experience one of an African-American in the United States? Did she suffer uh, racial discrimination? Did she have, uh, was she in touch with the African-American experience as it is understood to be in modern times? And there's no evidence of that. I mean, she, she comes from a very uh, well-to-do, educated background. Uh, you know, she did not grow up in any sort of uh, African-American community. Uh, I mean, I'm, so, and obviously these are all situations that are subjective, but I am completely flummoxed as to on what basis uh, Kamala Harris is considered to be an African-American. Again, I don't care, except for the fact that the media is constantly saying this, constantly giving her selection this added gravitas by saying she's the first African-American female to be a part of a presidential ticket. That's just that's not accurate. It's just not accurate. Uh, And, you know, now is she a woman of color? Sure. I don't even understand what that really means. I don't know what that significance is, but sure, she's a woman of color. I do find it funny that many on the left will tell us that, you know, gender identification is whatever you want it to be. So so I don't even know. I don't even know how you define woman anymore. But but I really do not understand. And I do think that there is some semblance of uh, suspicion of her within the African-American community because of that. And I base that on the fact that she did very poorly in the presidential race once uh, when she was a candidate. She underperformed dramatically and she never got any black support. Now, I don't know how many people in the African-American community in America know that her mother is from India and her dad is from Jamaica and she she, uh, had a a very well-to-do background and all that. I don't know. 
Um, but the reality is, and correlation isn't causation, or causation isn't correlation necessarily, but she did not do well uh, in the Democratic presidential primaries. Now, will she help Joe Biden? I, again, I think at this point it's do no harm. I don't think she's going to do any harm. I think in the very short run, there might be a, a, a tiny bump for Biden. He's already winning. It might help him just a little bit further, just simply from an energy standpoint, an excitement perspective. Uh, but I don't know that she's going to dramatically change the race. Uh, there are some conservatives who delusionally still think that we're living, you know, 10, 20 years ago where Harris is so liberal that she's going to offend a lot of voters and that somehow this is going to help Trump. I'm not in that boat yet either. I see no signs of that because if there were signs of that, we would have already seen it uh, over the last several months with the, the insane reaction to COVID and Democrats doing everything possibly can to overplay their hand. As far as Trump's reaction to the uh, Kamala Harris uh, pick, uh, it was a little bit subdued. Uh, he was asked about it at a press conference, and here's a portion of what he said about the Harris pick. A lot of things happening, and so I was a little surprised that he picked her. I've been watching her for a long time, and I was a little surprised. She was extraordinarily nasty to uh, Kavanaugh, Ju Judge Kavanaugh then, now Justice Kavanaugh. She was nasty to a level that was just uh, a horrible thing, the way she was, the way she treated now Justice Kavanaugh. And I won't forget that soon. So she did very poorly in the primaries, and now she's chosen. So let's see how that all works out. I will be very curious to see how much the Trump camp goes after Harris and in what way. There's been a lot of talk already that there's some confusion on the Republican side. They can't decide whether or not she's too progressive or that progressives don't really like her because she's not progressive enough. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm sure I'll have lots more to talk about with regard to Harris uh, moving forward. And I will be very curious to see what, if any, uh, political impact uh, there is of the Harris pick. Now, moving on to other news items, uh, Trump, uh, just after last week's uh, podcast, did something which is amazing. And it's remarkable we're not talking about it hardly at all anymore, but this happens all the time in the Trump presidency. And that is that he decided to abandon negotiations in uh, the, the Congress with regard to the next uh, COVID-related stimulus bill. And he decided to just simply do it, as, do it on his own. And he, he uh, promised a bunch of executive orders that were basically socialist. They're, they're, they're effectively, everything he proposed in this, this manic uh, effort to try to, to uh, become a king and, and do everything by executive order would have been considered to be both socialistic and fascist and a complete uh, uh, overplaying of his authority if it had been done by Barack Obama. Correct. Without any question whatsoever. I mean, every element of this, uh, the, this menu of executive order proposals was absolutely socialistic, including a moratorium on evictions for apartments and houses. I mean, my gosh, if Barack Obama had ever suggested that, uh, the right wing would be going bananas. One, because of the overreach of authority via executive order, and two, from the standpoint of it being absolute socialism. Uh, this included a whole bunch of other socialistic uh, proposals in an effort to try to hold things together in the wake of, of the COVID recession. And, and near depression uh, that has hit America and the world over the last uh, five months. I disagree completely 
uh, almost completely with almost everything that Trump proposed. But more importantly, I disagree with how he's planning on doing it. Now, my ire for this is mitigated slightly because I don't really believe that's what's going to happen. It seems pretty clear that this was a negotiating tactic. Now, I don't know, and I would like to know, whether or not this was signed off on by Mitch McConnell. Uh, Maybe it was even Mitch McConnell's idea as a negotiating tactic, because I, even though I hate Mitch McConnell and have had my own personal run-ins with him, there's one thing I trust Mitch McConnell on. He is a fantastic chess player. Trump is a terrible chess player. Horrendous. Correct. One of the worst. McConnell is fantastic. So if McConnell has uh, signed off on this or if this was his idea, then you know what? Okay, uh, this is probably all going to work out better in the end. There are signs uh, that that's exactly what this was, that this was a negotiation tactic. I do not agree with it. From a principle standpoint, conservatives should be absolutely outraged by it, both from the socialistic standpoint as well as from the perspective of what it says uh, about the authority of the executive branch. I mean, this is a legislative issue. A stimulus package is a legislative issue. This should not be being done via executive order. And by the way, if Biden's the next president, conservatives are going to rue the day when they were supporting people like Mark Levin, who's supposed to be a constitutional conservative, supporting Donald Trump and his extraordinary overreach of authority uh, with regard to executive orders, because now they've lost all credibility when it comes to fighting back against uh, Joe Biden doing essentially the same thing. But I'm hopeful that this is just going to result in uh, a negotiated uh, stimulus. I'm still not sure, by the way, that this negotiated stimulus in the long run is going to be a, a good idea. In the short run, it'll probably keep the airplane in the, in, in the air for a little bit while longer. Because uh, that's, you know, I've, I've used the metaphor that uh, America's economy is essentially an airplane. It's still in the air. It's lost at least one engine. The other engine is at, at best very faulty. And we got to figure out how the hell we're going to land this thing. And, you know, the more we, we print money, the more we're just delaying the inevitable. That's kind of what we're doing with the COVID virus in general, is we're just delaying the inevitable. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I actually think one of the problems politically with fighting against the lockdown is that not enough people understand the coming devastation. I really do believe, and I don't know what the percentage is. It might be 15. It might be 30%. It's a significant number. It's probably not a majority, but I think there's a significant number of people who, if they fully understood the price that we are paying for continuing to effectively be locked down in this country economically, not this, by the way, there's also obviously medical costs to doing so, but I'm talking about economics right now. That if people fully understood the economic devastation that is about to happen once this band aid is finally ripped off, because it eventually will have to be, that they would turn against the lockdown. But I think there are a lot of people who are delusional and are looking at things and going, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stores closed right now, but they'll probably come back and. I'm getting stimulus money. I'm getting extra unemployment money. And, uh, you know, the stock market is unbelievably at an almost all-time high. Uh, And so it doesn't feel as if, for most people, that we are on the cusp of an economic catastrophe. I think we're still heading in that direction. And eventually it's going to happen in some way, shape, or form. I mean, eventually people are going to start losing their homes, for instance. Uh, Something has to give here. And if people understood the price we're paying 
I think they would be far less likely to keep paying it, given the certain the, the current circumstances regarding the virus. Unfortunately, they don't see that right now. And by the time they realize it, it's going to be far too late. So I do think we're just delaying everything. And, I, and I, I've come to believe that that's largely what's happening with the virus. I, I really do believe that, that the virus is a situation now, and the, and the data is starting to make this exceedingly clear across the world, that there's really not that much we can do. That's what's so frustrating. The virus is what the virus is. And it's really just a matter of time. Uh, I mean, you know, in places that they thought they'd gotten rid of it, it's starting to come back in many places across the world. Uh, uh, you know, New Zealand is an interesting example because that's an island. Uh, and they, you know, they got all sorts of praise for having locked down and, and eliminated the virus for 100 days, 100 days. And then all of a sudden, they got four cases and they locked down again. Four cases in a, in a country, <laughs> New Zealand, not a, not a tiny country. And, uh, and they've locked down parts of the country again. Uh, this is emblematic of what we're seeing elsewhere. And the reality is that the virus cannot be stopped. It might be able to be delayed. It might be able to be contained for relatively short periods of time. But, you know, another island is, in, is a good example in the United States, Hawaii. Hawaii locked down harder than almost just about any other state. And they're an island. And the virus is uh, spiking there and has been uh, for several weeks. And um, they've got masks and they, they have, obviously they're protected by ocean and all sorts of things. And yet, because they don't have herd immunity yet, the virus is there. And it doesn't matter how many masks you wear. It doesn't matter how much you lock down. Eventually, it's going to happen. I am becoming more and more convinced that when this is all over to within you know, a certain degree of, of margin of error, you're going to be able to take almost every country and probably every state in the United States and simply do the following. Take the demographics and the density of population and, and come up with a matrix that will tell you exactly how much each location would have, would have expected as far as hospitalizations and deaths. And that you're going to find that almost every place is pretty much the same. That where you have older populations with high obesity and dense populations, you're going to have a lot of deaths and a lot of hospitalizations. In areas that are more rural, where there's not density of population, maybe the population is a little bit younger, and more importantly, more fit, less obese, you're going to have far less hospitalizations and deaths. And that those are the factors that matter the most. Not the nature of the lockdown, not how much you use masks, not how much you crack down on people for not using masks, like this horrendous video I saw in Australia where this poor white woman was was brutally attacked by a police officer on the street because she was not wearing a mask. I mean, this is the bizarre world we're now living in. And uh, and I haven't 100% come to this conclusion, but I really do believe that's where we're heading. That's where the data indicates we're heading. When you look at what happened at Sweden, with Sweden, or what has seemingly happened with Sweden, Sweden is currently at two deaths a day. Two a day. That's their seven-day average currently. Two, their cases are also 
exceedingly low. It appears as if they have hit some semblance of herd immunity. Now, at the beginning of all this, we were told, no, well, herd immunity, we can't, we can't rely on that uh, because that would take 60% of the population. And if you have 60% of the population having this, you're going to have far too many deaths. Well, guess what? It's turned out, one, that the death rate on this is not nearly what we had feared. But more importantly, it appears as if you can get a semblance of herd immunity at 20% of the population. That's what we're seeing, I believe, in Sweden. That's what I believe we're seeing in New York, which is now allowing schools to open, which is bizarre, considering the fact that New York got hit harder than anybody else. And, and incredibly, the news media praises them uh, for their work on this. And Governor Cuomo, even though they have by far the most deaths, and, and it's clearly the, the fault of the governor in a lot of ways because of the way they handled the nursing homes, but this is the, the upside-down world we're living in. But I now believe that this is much more about demographics and inevitability than it is about what we actually do. But, of course, liberals, they want to believe that government has magic powers. Like masks have magic powers. Government has magic powers. That It's really just a matter of how much we're going to let government influence our lives, dictate our lives. And if we just gave in to government 100%, we could get rid of this thing, and then we would be allowed to play college football. What a load of crap that is. What an absolute load of crap that argument is. And the college football issue, I do think, is going to be uh, very significant. I wrote a column for Mediate, which you can find at our our Twitter handle, Individual One Pod. That's Individual the Number One Pod, which I hope you'll check out. Uh, I, I mean, I wrote it, so of course I'm very interested in it, but I, I've had a lot of the people who are uh, high profile who, who find this idea that I put out there very fascinating, that the, the implosion of college football could have a major impact on the presidential election because of the way this is all going down on blue state, red state lines. And for those of you who don't understand about college football, basically what has happened in the last couple of days is that the blue states – and the Big Ten, the Upper Midwest, and the Pac-12, which is here on the West Coast, they have decided to cancel college football. Now, they're claiming they're, claiming they're going to do it in the spring, but that's bullshit. There, there's not going to be spring football. That is just a way to try to prevent people from getting uh, too upset. That's just a way to diffuse anger. No, 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 it's, it's not a cancellation. It's just a postponement. Bullcrap. Absolute bullcrap. Uh, Correct. And and the reality is that uh, there's not going to be college football uh, on a national level. There's not going to be an, a, a national champion because, heck, far more than 50% of the teams have already canceled. There's three major conferences that have not yet canceled. I believe that at least one of those three, the ACC, is going to also cancel. The ACC has got some southern states, some northern states, uh, I mean, I've always viewed the ACC as a bunch of pussy conference uh, teams. I mean, Duke, for God's sake. I mean, I used to cover Duke uh, as a television sportscaster. There's no way Duke is going to allow football. I mean, they consider themselves almost Ivy League. Uh, they're not, they're not going to piss off all their, their elite academia friends by going ahead and playing football and embarrassing everybody else. Uh, you, you got uh, Syracuse in there at uh, New York School. I don't think they're going to be able to play uh, North Carolina itself is always, you know, they wear powder blue. They're a bunch of wussies. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, having covered the ACC uh, as a sportscaster back 
in another era. I will be stunned if the ACC doesn't also cave. Now, interestingly, they've got the the defending national champions uh, from two years ago in Clemson. Now, Clemson is an interesting story here because Clemson effectively has herd immunity. Their whole team got this, and they want to play. Now, isn't that interesting? They, they, their players have made it clear they want to play. Now, you know, they're from South Carolina, which is a red state, and, you know, so they're not really ACC, which is, by the way, why they win the conference every year because they're playing against a bunch of wussies. Uh, and so it's almost unfair that uh, Clemson is allowed to play in a, in a wussy conference like the ACC. So, so Clemson wants to play, and, of course, the media is ignoring this. Isn't this interesting that the school that got hit the hardest by COVID wants to play? Because they had very little, if any, impact from it. And presumably they now have some immunity, if not extraordinary amounts of immunity, from getting it going forward. But I don't believe the ACC is going to play. I don't know what Clemson will do. Maybe you know, I, I think it's theoretically possible that Clemson could then uh, you know, somehow try to join the, the SEC for one year. That would be interesting. The SEC, the Southeastern Conference, and the Big 12, which are almost all red states, almost all red states, those two uh, conferences, they might try to play. And that's why I think there's a potential political ramification here. And that's why I wrote the column I did for Mediate. If you end up in a situation where the SEC and the Big 12 from almost all red states and they all go ahead and say, you know what, go fuck yourselves. We're going to play. And it works because I think this can work because I, I don't I don't think that uh, that this is a situation that's going to be catastrophic for college athletes. There's no indication that it will. Now, of course, they're the alarmists are saying, but John, what about the heart ramifications? There's, there's indications that people could be have their hearts damaged. Um, maybe. We don't know. I'd like to find out more. By the way, have you heard that football causes injuries? Have you heard that? Have you heard that uh, football inherently causes injuries? It, it's bad for a lot of parts of your body, including your head. Uh, and, and that's never stopped us before. Uh, and, and now because, you know, there's some anecdotal indication uh, that there could be a heart-related uh, uh, ailment involved in COVID, which I'm not convinced of because I, I don't believe, uh, you know, let's, let me just address this real quickly because I think this is an important point, not just on sports, but when it comes to all of this type of thing from the, from the alarmist out there, including Dr. Fauci, people are really bad at understanding numbers. We now have over 5 million people who have tested positive in this country for COVID, okay? 5 million is a shitload of people. That is an unbelievably high number of people. Guess what happens when you have a pool that enormous? When you have a pool that enormous and you have a microscope on that pool, a media microscope, guess what's going to happen? You're going to find weird shit. It's just the numbers, you're going to find, uh, you know, something weird is going to be found in that pool of five million. And then you're going to correlate it and, and presume causation with the fact that they all tested positive for COVID. Well, guess what? What about the four point nine 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 million people in that pool that didn't get the heart ailment or have their hair fall out or whatever the heck it is that's new that the media is trying to latch on to to make this thing even more scary than it already is. 
No one wants to think about that. So I'm not convinced on, on the heart issue. And if, if the southern schools, the red state schools, go forward, and if it is at all successful, now the media will try to make it not successful, although the sports media is going to be a little conflicted here. The sports media has been all in on shutting everything down because they're a bunch of liberal virtue signalers. But now their livelihoods are at stake. So there's going to be some hesitation, I think, upon this, even in the sports media to kill off the SEC and the Big 12 because if there's no college football at all this year, oh, my gosh. Stick a fork in ESPN, stick a fork in all sorts of media outlets because they rely on that for programming and, and money and all sorts of things. So if that happens, uh, that could be a, a real dividing line between red state and blue state and what kind of America you want to live in going forward. And Trump, to his credit, has jumped all over this. This is one of the smartest things Trump has done. I, I did a whole podcast two months ago saying he's got to jump all in on schools opening up, and he did just that. I don't think I was the reason. It hasn't worked out very well because of the negative anti-Trump, uh, you know, uh, anti-Midas effect. But Trump has really gone out of his way to support college football, uh, both via tweets and public statements. In fact, here he is on a, on a radio show, uh, that's, uh, you know, a, a conservative sports radio show. Uh, here is a Trump talking about the issue of college football opening up and how he believes it would be tragic if there was no college football this year. But, you know, these football players are very young, strong people. And physically, I mean, they're physically in extraordinary shape. So they're not going to have a problem. You're not going to see people, you know, could there be, could it happen? But I doubt it. You're not going to see people dying and Many people get it, and they have, like, kids, they get it. They have the sniffles. Young kids, almost none, have a serious problem with it. I mean, literally, you look, I think they said the state of California, almost nobody that's young had a, like, zero, had a problem with, meaning a a serious problem with this disease. I mean, they get better very quickly if they get it at all. So I think think football's making a tragic mistake. And I agree with him. I mean, I think that uh, football is making a tragic mistake, and it's not just about football. Football at the college level is incre- and high school level is incredibly important from a cultural perspective. I've covered football. I've written a book about a high school football team. Uh, you know, I'm a big college football fan. Uh, I've coached football. Uh, um, I'm not looking at this, though, from, from a perspective of, you know, football over everything. I just don't believe that the the risks outweigh the damage being done by destroying this. And it's really interesting to note, as I did in my column, that the Big Ten, where they're not going to play football, whether they were, they were the first major conference to cave and, and the liberals are going to take full response or are going to have to take full responsibility for this because uh, you've got a bunch of liberal academics, the liberal presidents of these universities in the three key states, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, the three states that elected Donald Trump. you got three state schools with Democratic governors ruling those three states, two of which with an iron fist heavy on the lockdown. And they're not going to play football this year. Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, Penn State, the University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, No football this year. Now, for Trump's perspective, if there's no football at all, that may not help him that much because it's not going to be proven that this was a bad decision. 
But I want you to think about, especially if you're a Biden supporter and you're, you know, you're at least open minded enough to realize this thing might not be over yet. Think about this scenario. So the SEC and or the Big 12 go ahead and play and it goes fine. There's no big problems. And now in middle of November, early November, right in the heart of what should be football season, the SEC and the Big 12 are on television every Saturday, and Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania got nothing. I'm sorry. That's going to be a problem. That is going to be a problem for Joe Biden because it's going to be blamed on liberals. That is going to be blamed on, and Trump, if he's smart, and it sounds like he's, he understands the significance of this, he's going to emphasize this. And there's something else that can happen within this scenario that I wrote about, which I, I, I know this is going to sound like I'm advising Donald Trump, which is awfully bizarre for a guy hosting a podcast called the Individual One Podcast, but I care more about my country uh, than I care about my opposition to Donald Trump. And I think this would be a great idea. And I, and I now believe that this idea, and I have good reason to believe this, is going to get in front of Trump in a, in a very uh, positive way. Uh, but Donald Trump has an option here that is unique. Even if the SEC and the Big 12 cave, Donald Trump can still save a, a semblance of college football. He is the commander-in-chief. He can cause Army, Navy, and Air Force to play their three-game series for the Commander-in-Chief trophy. And if all hell breaks loose and everybody caves on college football, but Donald Trump has Army, Navy, and Air Force play their three games for effectively the national championship since it's the only teams they're going to play, and he does this properly, and they have the two student bodies in attendance and the President of the United States in attendance, and they change the dates of those games before, at least some of them, a couple of them before the election, and that all goes well, I'm sorry. That's going to be powerful. That You're going to have massive television audience for that. Massive. Huge media coverage. And if Army, Navy, and Air Force, which they've already indicated they're going to try to move forward, and if they have the President's support, I guarantee they're going to try to do it. If that happens successfully... It is going to really create a stark difference in what kind of world we're going to have moving forward. That doesn't change my view of Trump, but I'm telling you that could have an impact. I'm not saying it's going to win him the election if it happens. I'm telling you it's going to have an impact if some something like that scenario transpires. And as I've said, and I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't exaggerate these things. I am confident that my column has gotten in front of Trump or at least the idea supporting my column has gotten in front of Trump from somebody he respects and trusts. And so if Trump is smart, he's going to play that card. And that card could be, if executed properly, very, very powerful because this is the type of thing that matters to people. That I believe that the country desperately needs something like this, especially once fall starts and into early winter. And uh, if we don't have it, I think people are going to start thinking very long and hard about what kind of country are we going to have going forward? Are we going to be a mask-wearing country where we can't even play uh, high school or college football and and pro football doesn't look anything like it used to? Or are we going to at least try to live our lives? And that could be powerful. Now, I'm not saying it's going to win it for him, but part of the big issue here is not just whether Trump 
wins or loses. It's by how much he wins or loses. Because I've always said one of the worst possible scenarios here is if he loses a close election. And that scenario, which I'll get to shortly, seemingly is still very much in play and might even be the most likely outcome of all of this. Now, before we get to the uh, current status of the the re-election race for Trump and Biden and his chances of being re-elected, I did want to do something a little bit different. Uh, you, you may or may not have noticed that I, I it's been a while uh, other, until yesterday uh, since I've written for Mediate, where I'm a senior columnist. There's a lot of reasons for that that are rather mundane. I was on vacation. My editor was on vacation. I'm limited by California by the number of the, of the number of columns I'm allowed to write in a particular year, which is bizarre but true. Uh, but one of them is that I wrote a column which I thought had been approved, but then ended up getting rejected. And uh, I don't want to get into how and why because I'm not even 100% sure how and why. But I wanted to share the column with you, the podcast audience, because I thought this was one of the more interesting things I had written in a long time. Now, I've learned in my media career, sometimes the most <laughs> the most compelling stuff you do uh, is just too out there for uh, a media outlet to appreciate and embrace. And this may or may not uh, be an example of that. You can decide for your own. But to me, what I wrote says a lot, in fact, that it wasn't published, says an awful lot about the nature of where we are with the entire COVID issue and how I believe that, one, the media is not allowing all sides of this by any stretch of the imagination. I said that very early on, that there are unique aspects to this story which are going to cause the media to clamp down on any contrarian views and that there's only going to be one accepted view that's going to be allowed on mainstream outlets in the media. And I've been 100% right on that. And I was attempting, when I wrote this, to get around that reality. And I thought I had figured out an ingenious way to do it, and it turned out I was wrong. But here's what I did. I decided to write a hypothetical news report. Hypothetical. This is satire slash parody. This is hypothetical. This is a news report pretending how everything would be perceived today if Hillary Clinton was running for re-election amidst the virus pandemic, all right? So what you're about to hear is me writing a hypothetical, satirical news report. Hopefully it'll make you laugh at certain points, but more importantly, it'll make you think about the way all this would be perceived right now if it was Hillary Clinton who was running for re-election. All right? You got me? So here it is. President Hillary Clinton continues to hold a small but steady lead over Republican nominee Donald Trump in a rematch of their highly contested and very close 2016 election battle. The campaign is focused on the very same Rust Belt states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which Clinton barely won in 2016, narrowly making her the nation's first female president after an extended recount was finally decided in her favor. Clinton, riding a strong economy, and held in check by Republican majorities in both houses of Congress, was heavily favored to win re-election until earlier this year, before the United States was hit by the coronavirus pandemic. The resulting severe negative impact on the nation's GDP and unemployment rates has given a political opening to Trump, who won the Republican nomination for a second time after no major GOP candidate other than former governor of Ohio John Kasich dared to even run against him and his rabid fan base. 
Clinton has won praise in many corners, especially within the scientific community, for her unwillingness to cower to the virus. She has courageously resisted calls to lock the country down beyond, beyond the initial flatten the curve for a few weeks stage, saying, quote, America is based on liberty and freedom. We cannot allow this virus, no matter how terrible it may be, to destroy our way of life. And we cannot make a bad situation even worse by allowing our attempts to deal with this illness to cause even more damage than the virus itself, unquote. Despite a recent explosion in new cases and an increase in what had been a very low daily death rate, this view has been largely vindicated by the results in Sweden, which never locked down via government edict and where the virus has now almost disappeared after having caused a large number of deaths early on. Trump, along with his allies in the conservative media, have tried to make the crisis seem far worse than medical experts say that it really is. At the heart of their argument is that over 160,000 Americans have died, quote-unquote, with the coronavirus this year. However, scientists, including those at the head of the CDC, countered that this claim is very deceiving because the median age of those who have died, quote-unquote, with the virus is 80 and that therefore the number of people who died primarily because of COVID-19 is substantially lower, and likely only a small fraction of that frighteningly high number. The debate in the television news media over the death rate has broken down on sharply ideological lines, with only Fox News Channel and One American News Network continuing to run a constant tally of total deaths, quote-unquote, with the virus. Conversely, MSNBC and CNN have stopped updating those numbers entirely, with CNN head Jeff Zucker explaining, quote, Once we realized that this virus was not nearly as deadly as originally feared and that the people dying here are generally well past life expectancy, we felt it would be, while maybe good for our ratings, journalistically irresponsible to overly scare the American public about something which doesn't reach the level of a national catastrophe, unquote. Trump and his team have constantly attacked Clinton for her response to the virus as, quote-unquote, a disaster, and have criticized her and Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of her coronavirus task force, for being very slow to react and for still not urging government mandates of mask wearing. Just last week, Trump tweeted, quote, look at the Asian, misspelled Asian, countries. Those people are really good at scientific stuff. They are all wearing masks. Why aren't we? Dumb! Exclamation point. In response, Fauci reiterated his initial analysis from March, which, backed by the Surgeon General and years of scientific study in the matter, indicated that masks are of little, if any, help to the general public when it comes to combating the spread of a virus, a perspective which appears even stronger after California, the only state with a mask mandate, has seen a significant rise in new cases well after those rules went into effect. Clinton, who has only worn a mask on rare occasions, has insisted that wearing one should be a matter of personal choice and responsibility, which she says is consistent with Americans' primary principles. Clinton has continually been optimistic about how treatments for the virus are getting better as we learn more about the illness, even expressing hope recently provided by a group of contrarian doctors who are promoting the controversial use of hydroxychloroquine that this one may be a game changer. Clinton's support for the concept quickly ended speculation that Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter may try to censor this or any other unorthodox theories on how to deal with the pandemic as they issued a joint statement concluding, quote, freedom of expression is a core value in America, and at this time, more than ever, all relevant suggestions should be thoughtfully considered and thoroughly debated, unquote. Trump seemingly looking for a wedge issue with suburban mothers, a, a key group of swing voters, has come out strongly against the reopening of schools, saying that he would use federal money as leverage to keep them closed in order to protect students and teachers from the virus. 
President Clinton and her allies have pushed back hard, saying that the science simply does not support such a drastic and damaging measure, especially since almost no children have died with the virus and teachers who are older or at great risk can be given the option of taking a year's sabbatical. Teachers unions have universally condemned Trump's call to not reopen schools as, quote unquote, insulting to their dedication to their profession and to the sacred social obligation to make sure our children receive a proper education. Clinton was faced with her greatest intraparty challenge of the campaign with the reaction to the videotaped death of George Floyd, a black man who apparently died due to his mistreatment while in the custody of a white police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When large nationwide protests threatened to widely spread the virus at a time when it appeared to be coming under control, former President Barack Obama stepped in with a passionate plea for restraint for the sake of the country's health, which immediately put the stop to the demonstrations that many conservatives complained were lacking, quote-unquote, proper social distancing, unquote. Trump, trying to create the impression of momentum on his side and desperation on the part of the Clinton team, has recently started to float the idea that the president and her supporters may seek to delay the election so as to give them more time to get the virus numbers down and the economic data up before the voters cast their ballots. Trump campaign manager, former Never Trump Republican operative Steve Schmidt, even issued a statement last week saying, quote, any attempt to delay this election by President Clinton and her cronies should be seen as an attack on democracy itself and a clear indication that even she knows that she is going to lose this race, unquote. Clinton currently leads the real clear politics average in national polls by three points, though a new pro-Trump Rasmussen survey has Trump now leading her by 16 points. Now, hopefully you understood where I was going with that. Hopefully also chuckled a few times. I really do believe in every bone of my body that that's pretty much the way things would be going down if Hillary Clinton was running for reelection, because almost all of this is political and everyone is seeing all of this through the prism of their own politics. And frankly, if there's something that makes this podcast unique and interesting is that I am in a very, 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 very unusual situation where I am a conservative who despises Trump, but who is horrified by what I'm seeing on the left. And I understand the way the news media works better than probably anybody on the planet. And so I'm telling you that this is mostly political, not in a conspiratorial way, but this is the way people are perceiving reality. It is through the prism of their own politics, and it's all through the perception of Trump. And Trump deserves blame for that. If Trump was a normal president who, who wasn't so divisive, wasn't toxic with 55 percent of the public, who wasn't a pathological liar, who had some semblance of credibility and he had some moral authority, he could have gotten us through this. But instead, it all became inherently political and it's becoming more and more political every single day. And America is being destroyed because of it. Now, as far as the the state of the race uh, for Trump's reelection, I do think Trump still has a pulse. Previously, I put the chances of him winning re-election at 10%, which was an all-time low since the start of this podcast. I'm going to nudge that up to 15%. Even though there's a good chance in the next few days you'll see some polls of Biden winning nationally by larger numbers because of the excitement over the Harris pick, I think that'll be short-lived. The key states are all that really matter. Biden would absolutely win if the election was today. 100% he would win. 
but he would not necessarily win by a huge margin. And Trump is still within theoretical striking distance, even though he would have to have everything go his way, not just the whole college football thing that I outlined. But it is not quite over yet. Biden has not sealed the deal. And I don't think that Harris is going to do that for him, uh, although I will certainly correct that if I'm wrong. So right now I'm going to put the chances of Trump's reelection at 15 percent. Uh, please remember to uh, subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual the number one pod. That's at individual the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network. <laughs>